that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, <clears throat> which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, <clears throat> and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the <clears throat> yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given. <clears throat> the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of <coughs> Heaven's armies will make this happen. Okay. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you as light of the world. <coughs> You came to deliver us from the domain of darkness, Lord, in which we all walk. We thank you, Lord, that without your sending Jesus, Lord, we would be hopelessly lost for all of eternity. So we just thank you. May we be especially reminded this season of what you did for us, Lord, that you didn't have to do it, but you chose to do it. You chose to send Jesus for us. What a great gift, the priceless gift that we can't even imagine, Lord, and we are just so grateful. We ask your blessings on, Lord, this time of year. We just pray that we would think of Jesus often, Lord, as we remember you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, amen. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. So that's kids up through the fifth grade can meet their teachers in the lobby and parents you can pick them up upstairs at the end of the service um lots of stuff going on as we enter into officially the advent and christmas season if you don't know what advent is and why we celebrate the way we do this wreath over here uh, we have five candles that we will light um, the four around the outside the four sundays leading up to christmas and then on the evening of Christmas Eve at our candlelight service, we'll light the final candle. And this is a way of connecting with generations of the church. 2,000 years of church history um, have, have engaged in a practice of longing, anticipating this birth that we celebrate with this holiday we call Christmas, which is Christ's joy. And it's a beautiful season, but there's a difference between Christmas and Advent. Christmas is where we celebrate the, the birth of Jesus. Advent is the season of anticipation, of longing, of waiting that moves us towards Christmas, prepares us for Christmas. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, 
There's thousands of years of history of the nation of Israel there. And all this time, they are waiting and longing for restoration and reconciliation to come from this figure who's given multiple names in the Old Testament, uh, the Messiah, which means the, the anointed one, the, the king of, of David's line, this redeemer, this reconciler, this servant, this shepherd. And Advent is a season where we anticipate that. And so each of the next four Sundays, we'll have one of our elders will, will come um, and light a candle and pray for us as we prepare for this season. We also have these little booklets, um, Advent devotionals that were available as you walked in. We were a little short on numbers, so I don't know if we ran out or if we still have some, but we'll have more next week um, if you want one of those. And it basically has, for the next three weeks, uh, Monday through Friday, so like 15 daily readings um, in the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah is this hefty 60-plus chapter Old Testament book that anticipates the coming of the Messiah. More than anyone else in the Old Testament, Isaiah writes about the coming Messiah. And so I just put together some reflections on how different passages in Isaiah anticipate the Messiah to hopefully stir you. You can read it as an individual, as a couple, as a family. Um, I pray that it will stir your devotional times with Jesus as you anticipate the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. Um, so I, I do hope you'll, you'll pick those up. But as we prepare and as we celebrate, um, there's so much that goes on in the life of a local church in Christmas. And so um, that officially starts today. So thanks to our Christmas choir, all that participated. They have one more song for us at the end of the service. Um, so I hope you, you'll engage with them in that. Um, but tonight we have two parties. One for our kids' ministry, Holly Jolly Palooza is what it's called. And um, you can communicate with Rico or kids' ministry leaders about that. But there is actually a sign-up for that, so we have the right numbers. And there's games, activities, that sort of thing that's going on tonight. So if you have the Church Center app and you go to the events sign-up page, if you don't know how to do that, find me at the end of the service find Kate, find a staff member, we'll help you do that. You can sign up your family for the kids' Christmas party just so we know. If you can't sign up, you can just find us and tell us you're coming, and we'll make sure Rika has the right preparations. But the youth Christmas party, you don't have to sign up for, just come. But our youth and kids' Christmas parties are both going to be um, this evening, so we'd love to have you there for that. And then this coming Saturday, we have a women's ministry event that is a simulcast, um, uh, that is an Advent-themed simulcast, prepare him room. It's about preparing your heart and your life for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. But then after that, the afternoon and evening of this Saturday, the 9th, we have a group that's going to the Processing Center for Operation Christmas Child in Atlanta, and we'd love to have you join. A lot of our youth are going, but if you want to be a part of that, talk to AJ today and Tell him you'd love to serve. You don't have to be youth. You don't have to be a youth parent. We'd love for some of our families to go. There is an, some age limitations. You can talk to AJ about that. Um, but that is helping process the boxes that will go to kids um, for Christmas. Then that's next Sunday, December 10th. Y'all, we have a lot going on. December 10th, um, next week, is our family uh, caroling. Or wait. Is that right? Caroling is next Sunday, the 10th. And then um, on the 17th, we have 
the, uh, we have two things going on the 17th. We have the packing for the jail ministry Christmas party again. We've done that um, a number of years. We usually pack that after the service. So next Sunday, the 10th, caroling night. Then the 17th will be packing bags for the jail. And then that evening will be the kids' Christmas program. And they've been working on this for, for weeks. And um, the, our elementary school kids have done a great job preparing for that. You'll want to be here on the 17th. So we want you here for kids and youth parties tonight. And then next week we have caroling. We'd love for any of you to come. The 17th we have the kids Christmas um, program. We'd love for any of you to come. You don't have to be a parent or grandparent to come and watch the kids in their show. And we'll have cookies and hot chocolate and all that stuff. There's a ton going on for Christmas. And um, then, then eventually we get to uh, Christmas Eve the following Sunday night, because Christmas Eve is a Sunday, where we'll have our candlelight service here together. So just be prepared for um, all that's coming in this season ahead, where Christmas is a good time to engage in a deeper way. You, you build relationships with your family at Christmas, and I hope that you'll schedule out some time, carve out some time in your busy schedules of all these office parties and family functions. Uh, schedule out some time for your church family this Christmas to engage in, in one or, or two or all of these events that we have where we can celebrate our Messiah together. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to start a new journey today. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, this will be a journey that will take, um, really take us pretty much up until Easter. We'll go Advent to Easter in this really weighty, powerful, amazing book of the New Testament that interprets for us the Old Testament. But we were, um, we were with my family, um, my extended family over Thanksgiving, and uh, we were in Cincinnati with my brother and sister and, and everybody, and we were at one point reminiscing about Christmas and about all of the, the family trips that you take over the years, because I grew up in Tennessee, but my family always lived in, um, in Indiana, close to the border, kind of close to Cincinnati, but really Indiana is where my family always traveled back home to. And I had a cousin that was there at Thanksgiving. He lived in Texas, and we were just reminiscing on these trips back to Indiana from Tennessee and Texas as a child. And all the anticipation and excitement of, of those trips, because we were the Southerners, we were always like hoping for snow and and we weren't really that far north to where we didn't get a whole lot of snow in all these trips, but we were hoping that that would be the thing. But I remember, for me, what Christmas as a child brings to mind is the road trip mentality. And so many of us, I think you too probably, the way you view Christmas, the way you view this season, is going to be interpreted through some of the lenses you developed at a young age. Your view of Christmas and the excitement of it, some of those sweet memories from childhood still sort of frame the way you get excited about it today. But then Christmas sort of comes in waves because when you have kids, you, it, when you're a kid, it's really exciting. And then there's this sort of lull where it's like, I've kind of outgrown Christmas a little bit. When you're a young single, it doesn't really get that exciting. But then if you have kids or if there's more young kids in your family, then it gets exciting again because you experience the joy through others. And then there's the grandparenting phase where you get to experience the joy through others again. So you sort of go through these, these seasons of Christmas. But I think back to when I was a child, what Christmas meant 
was being in the very back of the van because I was the middle child, so I got no votes on anything. I, sermons is always where I process my middle child trauma, by the way. It's like group therapy. So sitting in the back of the van where there is no room, because like now you buy a minivan and you can like move the seats any which way you want, that's not the Ford Aerostar that we had. Like it was just this row of seating in the back and there were presents and luggage and everything stacked. And so like I would sit like this all the way to Indiana and I would like lean. We had these big like the 30 gallon like Rubbermaid bins full of Christmas presents for all my cousins were like right next to me. And it's like all that way from Jackson, Tennessee to Connorsville, Indiana was like wedged in because my family, it was big. We did it big, and it was like big with all of, all of the cousins. My grandparents were there. Everybody was there, and so here we are at Thanksgiving, and I'm processing this, and I'm being like, yeah, I was always the middle child that was wedged in the back with all these presents all around, and I couldn't move, and my brother and sister, they had the comfortable seats up there. My cousin goes, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't understand that rich people life that you had. You know, you rich people that had third row seats in your car. We took a Yaris to come home for Christmas. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. No, my family, my cousin, my, my uncle from Texas, this was a legend in our family. They would pack the family into a Toyota Yaris, and he put a hitch on the back with a trailer to get all the presents, everything packed up. I mean, can you, have you ever seen a Toyota Yaris pulling a trailer? Because we, we had one in my family. And it was, and that's what my cousin brought up, like, yeah, you think you suffered in that third row seating. Rich people have third row seats. People like us, we have Yaris's, and we load everything in there. But that's what Christmas is, right? It's big, it's presents, it's excitement, it's lots of, it's a big family thing. That's how so many of us develop these frameworks in our mind, these mental images of this is what the season is about. And then, when you grow out of that phase, and people start celebrating Christmas differently, and all those people that were there in that scene of my childhood Christmas memories, they're all in different places now. They're all celebrating Christmas in, in different states, spread out. People grow up, people get married, people have their own children, and the family grows and spreads. But so many of our expectations are set there, where we have this longing that there's supposed to be something big, there's supposed to be something great. And, and there comes a time, and you're maybe, maybe it's like 12 or 13, Maybe it's older for some, maybe it's 15 or 16, where you're like, man, that just doesn't feel the same anymore. Like, you get electronics and not toys, and electronics is what you really want, but it's not the same level of excitement. And then there's this comparison of, it's just not the same. Well, this comparison is baked into our culture's view of Christmas. We're always thinking about bigger and better. Every year, the culture goes, goes deeper into the stuff of Christmas, into presents and materialisms and, 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 all, and lights and all these things that are really good on their own. Everybody likes toys. There's nothing bad about toys. But when we focus on the materialism of Christmas, all of the trimmings of Christmas, we lose sight of the center of Christmas. And the whole book of Hebrews is a book of comparison. It's literally the book in the Bible that is the most centered on the theme of comparison. 
And our culture's view of Christmas is always comparing. We want to do it better this year than we did last year. And you see that in your family, where if you have a really great Christmas, you, you realize this, right? Think about the perfect Christmas you had as a family. You just increase the expectation, and then the next year Christmas is kind of a letdown, right? Because you're never going to get that G.I. Joe battleship again, right? That was like peak Christmas. And then when you're 38, it's like, I'm not really excited about anything. I mean, it's cool stuff, but... Hebrews tells us, if you want to find meaning, if you want to find value in life, then let's sit down and let's do a comparison. Let's find out what is better. Let's honor the good. Let's affirm the good. But let's find out what the better version of life is. There's certain definitions of life that can get you to go in a good direction. But what's the better life? What's the best life? What's the life of most purpose and what most meaning? That's what Hebrews is. What is the best way to follow Jesus? What is the best way to live your life? So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to give you a quick overview of why the book of Hebrews exists and is in the Bible, okay? We're going to go today, I'm going to give you the occasion of the letter, which is simply the why of the letter. Why did this letter need to be written? And then I'm going to give you a little bit on the themes of the letter, which is the, the what of the letter, what's the letter about. And then we'll look at the first two verses as setting the stage. Um, the book of Hebrews is famous for two C words, comparison and controversy. Comparison is the, the, the biggest theme of Hebrews. You'll see that all throughout, that the author of Hebrews is constantly comparing. But controversy is this other thing. And I'm just going to open the door and, and let you know, we'll address all the controversy as we go over the next few months. But the controversy of Hebrews is we don't know who wrote it. And that's okay. We're going to lean into that and be comfortable with recognizing God wrote it, and we don't know what human author he used. But we, we will talk a little bit about the different options of authors, human authors that could have written it. Um, Hebrews is, is confusing and controversial because Hebrews says the Old Covenant is obsolete. That's a really strong word. It's a really uncomfortable word. We have all of these books that we call the Old Testament that are the Old Covenant Scriptures, and the author of Hebrews jumps in and says, Jesus came and made the old obsolete. What do we need to do with that? Do we still read it? Do we still do an Advent study on, on Isaiah? Do we do, still do sermon studies on Proverbs if the Old Covenant is obsolete? Well, obviously, I just did both of those things. So we'll see what that obsolete word means and what he's trying to communicate with saying, Jesus is here, so that back there is obsolete. We'll also see what he means when he says, be careful lest you fall away. But then other people say, well, but once I'm in Christ, once I'm saved in Jesus, I can't fall away, right? Once saved, always saved is this thing that we say, or sometimes we, depending on what tradition you're in, you might say once saved, always saved. You might use the word eternal security, perseverance of the saints, depending on tradition. It, it means the same thing. Can you lose your salvation? After you are once saved and in Jesus, can you fall 
away from Jesus. It's a huge thing of the book of Hebrews. What about Israel? What about the nation of Israel and the church? And how does the nation of Israel and the church, how, how, how's all that work? That's addressed in Hebrews. There's lots of stuff there. But let me tell you what the book of Hebrews primarily is. The book of Hebrews, actually, more than most of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews is, is more of like an oral document than a written document. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. And when you look at the book of Hebrews as compared to the other letters, like the letters from Paul, as an example, you see some of the structural differences. Paul starts out all of his, his letters with addressing who he's writing to and naming himself, and he ends the letters with a greeting. Hebrews ends with a little bit of sort of some letter formatting. But for the most part, the book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a sermon on the Old Covenant. It's a sermon in particular on a particular psalm that he's, that he's kind of spelling out to us. But Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament constantly. So our challenge is going to be, over the next few months, how do we read the book of Hebrews, study the book of Hebrews, engage in the book of Hebrews, and not get lost in all of the quotations where you're pulling out stuff from the, from the Old Testament? Because there's really a lot of power and, and benefit in tracing those. So we'll do some of that, but for the most part, on Sunday mornings, we're going to try to keep on the theme of what Jesus is telling us through this book. And so the occasion, okay, we'll, we'll start there. What's the occasion? The why of the letter is that there are Christians that are suffering, most likely from, from the, the, what the Hebrew says about itself. Most likely these are people living in Italy, probably Rome is the original audience of the letter. The way the letter ends makes that somewhat clear. But these are people that are suffering, okay? Why are they suffering? Well, if you didn't know the history of of the first century and the way the New Testament fits into first century history, Christians were persecuted in the early days. And the book of Hebrews shows up on the timeline in a place where Christians were being persecuted and were being strongly, heavily persecuted. Now, here's one, one thing I want to say before I go too far. Um, I'm going to produce a video that's going to be a non-sermon explainer video about, like, the message and background of Hebrews, because there's so much, okay, so I was at dinner on Friday night at my house, and I was asked a question, and I had a confession, because the person that asked me this question, it was like a, a biblical question, right? And they asked me this question, and they said, I'm sorry, I don't want to make you like work on a Friday night. And I said, I have a confession. I am socially awkward, and I do not know the social cues I could answer this question for the next hour, but I don't know how appropriate that is. So I'm going to try to give you a short version and not talk for the next hour, okay? But if you want to know more, just keep asking questions, and I will talk for the next hour. So here's the deal. If in a sermon, doing all the nerdy background stuff is not always appropriate, okay? But I really want to do that. So I'm going to make you a video and I'm going to give it to you in January where you can see a little bit of the more nerdy stuff for those of you that are more like me. But for Sunday morning, we're, going to go, we're just going to go dip a little bit in there and talk about the message of the book, okay? But what you all need to know, and what we'll come back to week after week after week, is that the occasion, the why of the letter, is that there are people suffering. 
And the audience, again, Italian Christians, but the, the reason the book is called Hebrews is these are specifically Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians. So those that once followed the law of the Old Covenant, those that were ethnically descended from Abraham, and those who were practicing the works of the law, had been dispersed by persecution and by just the conquering of the Roman Empire throughout the, the Roman Empire of the first century, and some of them ended up in Rome. So they knew the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. They knew the laws. They knew how to practice and follow the laws. But now they believed Jesus was their Messiah. And the author of Hebrews is trying to convince them, stay with Jesus. Why would they be prone to leave Jesus? Because here's what was happening in the first century context. Jesus had come, had risen again, had conquered death, and then gone on to heaven, and then left his people to suffer. The suffering Savior left his people to follow him into suffering. There's no, there's no two ways around it. That's just what happened. So the earliest Christians had to sacrifice a lot to follow Jesus. And for many of these that knew what Judaism was like, they knew Judaism was uncomfortable in Rome, right? Because Rome, first century Rome, was polytheistic, and there were lots of gods, and principally emperor was like the most important god, right? He wasn't the strongest god, but that was the one that like he would literally kill you if you didn't worship him. And so the emperor was important. The many gods were important. So being a Jew that believed in one god was uncomfortable. But then when you became a Christian, persecution got worse. So the dilemma that these early Christians were facing is Judaism was actually physically safer for them than Christianity, than the way of Jesus. And so as they're, as they're struggling through the persecution that comes specifically on Christians, they're recognizing, number one, Judaism had far more concrete practices and was far more tangible for us. And you know that to be true, right? One of the things we struggle, I was talking to somebody this week that was uh, telling me about a conversation with a young person that was like, I want to follow Jesus. I want to grow. I want to be a better Christian. I don't know the right steps. And that's for literally all of us one of the hardest questions we face. Like, I don't think there's very many Christians out there that just don't want to grow. They just don't want to do anything and you want to be a, a lazy Christian the rest of your life. But we don't have clear visions all the time of what growth looks like. What do we need to do? What do we need to practice? And so in the first century, here's what they were seeing. In Judaism, we knew what to do. We knew the structures. We have all these laws. The Pharisees, they told us exactly what to do. The scribes and teachers of the law, they told us exactly what to do. But now in Christianity, this whole grace thing and following Jesus, what of the old covenant do we still do? We're not supposed to offer sacrifices. They were in Rome. They couldn't offer sacrifices there. They could go back to Jerusalem. The other thing about the timing, this is probably timing before 70 AD because it looks like the book of Hebrews was written while there were sacrifices happening in Jerusalem. So the temple in Jerusalem was there. But these people were probably in Rome. But they knew that they could go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And there was this longing. 
this nostalgia. Judaism was easier. It made more sense. There was better structure. It was more tangible. And oh, by the way, we suffered a lot less. And so the big question of the book of Hebrews, is Jesus worth it? Is this Messiah, is, it, is he worth it? Does Christianity work? And that's, that's a timeless question. Because for them, they were tempted to think, well, actually, Judaism works more than Christianity because I know I can smell the smoke of the sacrifice when my sin is being paid for. I, that makes sense to me. I can see the blood being shed of that animal. That makes sense to me. But this Jesus I never met that lived in another part of the world, I never got to see him. I never got to touch him. I never got to, got to feel his, his, the hands and the feet the way Thomas so desperately wanted to do. And so the questions are actually the same questions we face today. Does Christianity work? Is Jesus worth it? Does it make enough sense to make sacrifices to follow? That's the question that the, the, the audience of Hebrews, that's what they're asking, and that's what this book is answering. The theme of the letter, then, is Jesus. Jesus is better. I mean, that's the theme in three words. Jesus is better. It's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. I told you it's a book of comparison. It's a book that's structured around all these key comparisons. And what we'll talk about over Advent is angels, because, like, it fits Advent, right? So many of our Christmas stories, we're going to sing songs about angels in this, in this season. We're going to read stories about angels. We're going to think more about angels. The angels are so important to the Christmas story. So this is a really good time to talk about our theology of angels, what we believe about angels. And the author of Hebrews is like, y'all, angels are great, and Jesus is better. Don't be distracted by the flash and the sound and the excitement and the mystery. Angels are fascinating, right? That's why we like to think about angels. That's why they like to think about angels. Because spiritual dimensions, they're, they're not tangible. And so we like to wonder and think and, and sort of uh, you know, guess at what angels might be like. So we have all these hypotheses and all this stuff. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is, no, Jesus is better. He's far more fascinating. He's far more concrete. He is far better and stronger, and his authority goes beyond what angels provide. But it's not just angels. He goes from angels, Jesus is better than angels, to Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. And then because Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus' law is better than Moses' law. And because and the revelation that Jesus brings is better than the revelation that Moses brought. And the system, Jesus is a mediator like the priests were mediators. So Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a priest of a better covenant. Jesus um, brings us into a better promised land. Uh, Jesus uh, reveals to us God's presence from a better Sinai. All of these things, Sinai, promised land, covenant, law, um, Moses, priests, angels, they're all compared to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews goes through this structure. Really, it's kind of six parts. And he goes through and he says, Jesus is better than angels, Jesus is better than Moses, than the law, etc., etc. So that's where we're going over these next few months. Jesus is better. That's the theme. So the question for us is, what are the rivals 
that we face. Before we jump in, okay, because here's, here's going to be my guess. I don't think there are very many people in this room that are prone to leave Jesus for angel worship. Nor do I think there's very many people in this room that are prone to leave Jesus to offer sacrifices at the temple. Nor do I think there's people that think Moses is actually better than Jesus. So the rivalries aren't the same for us, okay? That's where we take this cultural interpretation. We have to sort of go through the lens of first century believers and think through where are we today? There's different rivals. What rivals Jesus in your life? Is it the the goals that you have for yourself, your definition of what success looks like? What is your definition for success? What is your definition for the good life or the best life? Is working hard for a 40-year career and then getting to the point where you can retire comfortably and enjoy your wife and your adult children and your grandchildren? Is that, is that the good life? Is that really it? Or is there more to it in terms of leaving a legacy, not just for family, but a legacy that points towards Jesus? Building his kingdom, being a faithful disciple. What is the life that you're looking to live? What are the rivals? Are the rivals your own material um, desires? Money, power, acclaim, the opinions of others? Is, is the rival um, your own family where more than anything, think about it, if you lost all hope in Jesus but you had better relationships with, with your family or with your friends, would that, would that be okay with you? Like what, what, what is more important? Some of us have made idols. Some of us have put our own family at the center of everything. But the author of Hebrews is going to pound it into our brains And so if you feel like I'm pounding it into your brain, I'm just going to passively say it's the author of Hebrews pounding it into our brains. Jesus is better. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant that completely covers over, atones for the sins of all people so that we would be saved to the uttermost. To the uttermost. Completely saved. No question. Fully saved. In every way, saved and therefore hopeful. How do you endure suffering as a follower of Jesus? What I believe the author of Hebrews is trying to drill into our brains is that hope is the answer. Hope. Hope that Jesus did come, and when we light a candle and celebrate Advent, we're really anticipating this season, this 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 new experience of the coming of Jesus that brings hope, joy, and peace in a, in a real way, in a felt way. How would people around us, how would the world come to believe in Jesus given all the insanity of the world today? What does the world need to see from us? Hope. They need to see that believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, can suffer can endure the same hardships, the same rough economy, the same violence, the same uncertainty, all of those hardships that we as followers of Jesus can can endure all of that stuff and still actually maintain joy because we have hope. The book of Hebrews is about the hope of Jesus. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, so that we, so that we might become saved to the uttermost. This is a Jesus that loves us, that brings hope to us. So the theme of the, better, of the letter is Jesus is better because Jesus brings hope. Along that way, we'll see three R words, revelation, reconciliation, and rest. That's what Jesus is leading us into. Deeper revelation, fuller reconciliation, and a fuller rest. The author of Hebrew brings encouragement and exhortation along the way. We can be encouraged and hopeful in suffering, but you will be exhorted. You know what exhorted means, right? Exhorted is like the harsh side of encouragement, right? Encouragement is good that makes you feel better in your sorrow and in your uncertainty. Exhortation is, is sit up, stand up, move, let's go. Because the book of Hebrews has these two themes. Sufferers need to be encouraged and lazy Christians need to be exhorted to step it up. It's coming at us from both ways. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for us. And we'll just briefly open the door. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Those are the only two verses we'll go into today. Those two verses. There's a comparison here. I told you the book's all about comparisons. The comparisons between what happens long ago and what happens in these last days. So look at it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. That's verse 1. So we have four things there. Four aspects of comparison that we're about to see in verse 2. Long ago is the timing. God spoke to the fathers. That's the audience. God speaking to the fathers. The means of this speaking was by the prophets. Number three. And number four, various times in various ways. Long ago, to the fathers, by the prophets, various times in various ways. Verse two, we have the contrast. In these last days, okay? So we're distinguishing between the past and the present, okay? These last days is the present. We're still, by the way, 2,000 years later in these last days. You say that doesn't make sense. How are the last days 2,000 years ago and today? I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I do know. I'll give, you, I'll give you the simple way of what I know and what I don't know. What I mean is that these are the days of Jesus. The days of Jesus' kingdom on earth. This is the last period of revelation. The last period of human history before the eternal kingdom. So these are the last days of life like it is, where Jesus has come as a Messiah, and the way you relate to God is through the Word and Spirit, hearing the Word of the Lord, and by the Spirit of God responding to Jesus. We are in those days, the Word and the Spirit days. And those days started when Jesus came and will continue until Jesus comes back. Jesus bookmarks the period of history we're in, and it's called these last days. So long ago, before Jesus, these last days, the age of the gospel that we're in now. Long ago, he spoke to the fathers. Now he speaks to us, verse 2. 
to us. He has spoken to us. Long ago, he spoke by multiple prophets. Now, he speaks to us by his son. So do you see how this Christmas story is better than any other revelation we could have received before? The prophets gave us pieces, and Jesus gave us the gospel. Jesus gave us the good news where we could be saved and we could connect with him. So all the little pieces that the prophets brought along over hundreds of years, thousands of years, Jesus finally gives us the full story. But then, what about the at various times and in different ways? Well, the author doesn't, in verse 2, give us this wrap-up of a contrast in various times and in in different ways. But what verse 2 tells us is that whereas verse 1 said, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets various times in various ways. Now, in these last days, he's spoken to us, not just the prophets, but to all of us, by the Son, in a final, definitive way. That's the message of Hebrews. God has spoken to us in a final, definitive way. He's left us some mystery. Paul talks about that. But the biggest mysteries have been solved. The biggest mysteries of the old covenant scriptures, of of Israel's searching and longing, we, we know now the answer. We know how to be saved. It's Jesus. He's the only way. The full revelation of God is Jesus, the Son of God come as a man to die on the cross for us. And so now we see from this passage, God is a speaking God. The theme of God speaking is so powerful throughout all of Scripture, it's here in Hebrews. God speaks. God has spoken throughout all human history, and he's speaking to us now. By his Son, through his Word, empowered by the Spirit, God has revealed himself in a full and final way. You reject this revelation of God, there's no more revelation coming. You reject this revelation of God, this manifestation, this word from the Lord that is Jesus. There's no new way to find and receive salvation through God. It's interesting that the, um, I told you this is a sermon. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. It's a follower of Jesus. It's a, somebody with a, a Jewish background for sure. Somebody that was probably in relationship with Paul that was not Paul. Um, he knows how to, how to craft a sermon. Verse 1, he has four Ps. He uses alliteration. I tried to use some alliteration with you. Rest, revelation, and um, I forgot the other one already. Reconciliation. Revelation, reconciliation, rest. That's our theme. That's our three-part theme of the book. The author of Hebrews, he gives you four Ps at different times, different ways. Long ago, fathers and prophets. Those four words, those four phrases all start with the letter P. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to come up with new ways, creative ways to communicate to his original audience, the old has gone and the new has come. When I talked about Christmases as as children, that's not coming back. That joy of, of the best Christmas present you've ever gotten, it's not coming back. Your kids that have grown up, they're not going to be little kids again. all those memories that you want to grasp for and long for in the past, that's not coming back. 
The message of Hebrews is stop longing for the past and embrace what Jesus has given us now because the fullest gift of life, of hope, and all eternity is right in front of us. So all the nostalgia that Christmas brings, embrace God speaking in the final and definitive way. Hebrews is a fascinating book, and I hope that as we go into it, you're going to be fascinated by some of the questions, and and it's okay to talk about the controversial stuff because sometimes that breeds fascination, but that should be the way we relate to Jesus. Fascination, wanting to learn more. I pray that those Advent devotionals serve you as you're fascinated to jump into the mind of an ancient Jew anticipating the Messiah and then jump into the mind of a modern Daltonian living in the aftermath of the Messiah coming, and what do I do about this? After three months of talking about encountering God, we closed our series on encountering God last week with two words, word and spirit. That's what it means to encounter God, to experience the word of God by the spirit of God. That's what Christmas is about as well. The final revelation of of who God is. The word of God coming by his son. And the spirit of God coming in new and meaningful ways to us. So our goal this Christmas is to fuel fascination. And to encounter God by both his word and his spirit. I'm going to ask the the choir, y'all can go ahead and make their way up here. As I close us with, with three thoughts. Three thoughts. I want you to respond. And I really want you to think about how you respond to the message. So maybe you, maybe you write these down in your Bible. Maybe you write these down in your notes somewhere. Worship, listen, learn. This is your Advent goal. This is your seasonal goal. How many days until Christmas? It's the, it's the 20, 22 days until Christmas, okay? We're anticipating. We're longing. We're excited. So what do you do while you wait? You worship. Let the Spirit of God come in a powerful way into you and then welcome Him into your household with worship. We'll close today worshiping our, our King, the King who has come. Move in your family this week in new opportunities to worship. Find a time to sing Christmas carols in your home. Find a time to read Christmas stories in your home. Find a time to watch a Christmas movie that's about Jesus and engage in worship. That's how we respond to the message. Uh, Number two, listen. There's no time like Christmas to be overwhelmed with busyness, right? But I'm going to give you another option. There's no time like Christmas to start a new practice in the Word of God, to go deeper. Read Hebrews, read Isaiah. I've given you some tools for both, okay? But as you read, read either one of them, read something else. Listen to the voice of God in the word of God and learn. Have you learned all there is to know about Jesus? You know, here's the way I approach Christmas as a, as a pastor. I don't, and sometimes you, if you don't like it, you can tell me this. I don't always preach the sermons from Matthew and John that everybody expects in the Christmas season. And I do that because I want us to experience those, love those, learn those, but also 
experience other parts of the Word of God and the way fascination breeds us to live in the aftermath of the Messiah, the implications of the Messiah as he moves in all of Scripture. Have you learned all you need to know about Jesus? Sure, you know the Christmas stories, but have you learned what the Messiah brings to every corner of your life? Because with Jesus at the center, all of life changes. Everything in your world will change. So reflect on those. Worship, listen, and learn as the choir leads us.